Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today, we're talking to one of the co-authors of the new book, Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story, published by Strong Arm Press. David Dayan, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I think uh, Steve Mnuchin is a fantastic subject for a book. Uh, You know, there's so much... Uh, uh, craziness that goes on in the Trump presidency that it's very easy to overlook um, various uh, policy issue areas and individual figures in his administration. And the Treasury Department is is no small department, and yet we we talk very little about what's going on there. What? So I, I was interested in the subject. What, what compelled you to delve into uh, his story? Yeah, I think something similar. I mean, uh, this is a guy who uh, was kind of anointed as uh, financial royalty just by virtue of his lineage. Uh, His dad was a partner at Goldman Sachs. His brother was a partner at Goldman Sachs. And of course, he becomes a partner at Goldman Sachs. And uh, he just kind of uh, jumped through this whole world. Elizabeth Warren famously called him the Forrest Gump of the financial crisis. Uh, He was involved in mortgage-backed securities, which was one of the central elements of the crisis. He then bought a failed bank and engaged in uh, that bank that he bought, engaged in a lot of the uh, dicey practices in foreclosure operations. Uh, and, and he somehow skates away from all of that and then gets put into a position where he is now supervising the very actors that, like him, brought us to the brink of crisis in 2008. And so it's a, a fascinating kind of uh, 360 that we get to look at here if you really delve in to his life and times. And so that was that was really a motivating factor. And obviously, you know, anyone that has an interest in in these kinds of issues, financial issues, knows the importance of the Treasury Department. 
and so seeing not only who the man is that is running it, but what the policies he is putting forward uh, that that have the potential to either trigger another financial crisis or uh, at least enrich those who who perpetrated it the first time, I think is is incredibly important. So uh, it was a combination of all those factors. Now, uh, this may go a little bit beyond uh, what you're able to delve into in the book. I do want to get to a lot of the book uh, specifics. Uh, but I, I was always struck when he was first chosen because, uh, you know, on one hand, uh, you know, Trump ran as more of a populist and was very critical of Wall Street. He tried to tie Hillary Clinton to Wall Street. Then he picks a consummate Wall Streeter, which is sort of a, a common criticism of Trump that he turned around and uh, turned his back on all that type of uh, populist arc in the campaign. But also, if you're going to pick a Wall Streeter, why this Wall Streeter. I mean, you 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 mentioned in the book that uh, several other people say he's not the sharpest knife in the in the cabinet. Um, this is a fairly sensitive position. You don't want uh, someone who's all thumbs to be head of your Treasury Department. Uh, do you have a good sense of why why he what the logic was behind him getting this very plump position? Well, uh, I I would say that as we know, Mnuchin served as the finance chair for Donald Trump's campaign, and so he was able to be sort of in close proximity to Trump uh, throughout that time. And what we know is Trump likes people who like him. And uh, if Stephen Mnuchin is good at one thing, it's sycophancy. Uh, he he is has time and again defended Trump, uh, even if he you know doesn't agree with him or if the the statements Trump are, is making are, are insane. Uh, he has gone to the mat for Trump over and over and over again, and those are the kind of people who seem to rise through the ranks of the Trump Organization or the Trump White House. Uh, and so I think it's 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 almost as simple as that. But uh, you're absolutely right. In terms of uh, Mnuchin having a, a kind of reputation for uh, uh, being a bit of a dim bulb, I mean, we saw this uh, kind of recently when uh, the uh, Mnuchin puts out a statement. Uh, this is around uh, uh, December 2018 when the stock market is very volatile and it's dropping a little bit. He puts out this statement saying, "I just spoke with the heads of the the top six banks." And uh, I, I, they've assured me that we have ample liquidity for all operations in the United States. Well, nobody was asking that whether we had ample liquidity or not. And all this did was cause more consternation and anxiety because uh, he was say, this is the kind of thing you would ask if there was an imminent financial crisis and there wasn't one on the horizon. So, so Mnuchin, in effect, created a crisis uh, just by I, assuring people uh, about something that people were already assured about, so that that I think is a mark of of this tendency to uh, maybe maybe not be Wall Street's you know uh, best and finest, uh, but as long as he is in Trump's good graces, he's probably likely to stay there. Uh, well, let's let's get back to the book. You do go to the beginning. Uh, and, so, and, and I think, as you referenced just a few minutes ago, uh, Steve Mnuchin uh, was, isn't just uh, a Goldman Sachs veteran. He comes from a family 
of uh, of Wall Streeters. Uh, how would you characterize uh, the, the Mnuchin uh, origin story? Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is someone, as I mentioned, whose, whose father was a Goldman Sachs partner who ran the trading division. His brother was was a partner. He got there a few years before him. His his grandfather founded a yacht club in the Hamptons. So, you know, I mean, the Mnuchin lineage is long and and uh, it runs in the, those elite circles. Um, Mnuchin uh, at Yale uh, he, his roommate was a guy named Eddie Lampert, who ended up, uh, working at Goldman Sachs, of course, both, uh, both of his roommates did. And then Lampert split off, started a hedge fund and bought Sears, which, uh, is now on the brink of liquidation, uh, thanks to, uh, some of, some of Lampert's financial engineering. Uh, so, so even, you know, it, it kind of, Distinguishes the circles that that Mnuchin ran in, uh, which which all had to do with finance and and, and the industry. Uh, Mnuchin had a, uh, a, a an internship uh, essentially when he was at uh, uh, before he got to Goldman Sachs, uh, which was a summer internship at at Solomon Brothers, which uh, was in that time in the 1980s creating the mortgage-backed securities. So Lou Ranieri uh, was uh, the main uh, mortgage trading desk figure at Solomon Brothers, and he figured out how to create turn mortgages, essentially, into a tradable instrument that uh, uh, and, and steal market share away from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the secondary mortgage market. These were the stirrings of what led, really, to the financial crisis, the the buying and selling of mortgages that, that fueled a bubble and eventually a collapse. And Steve Mnuchin was an, a summer intern as they were figuring all this out. So it's, it's just amazing to, to see where, you know, he, he landed in all uh, phases of this. He ended up becoming uh, someone who was running uh, mortgage operations at Goldman Sachs around the time that they were engaged in what has come to be known as the big short, where they were shorting the housing market and, uh, uh, you know, allegedly lying to investors about the quality of the mortgage-backed securities that they were uh, offering to them uh, while uh, taking the other side of the bet. So uh, you, you almost can't find... Uh, a a major scandal within uh, particularly mortgages uh, that Steve Mnuchin wasn't connected to in one way or another. Um, so uh, you mentioned in the book, uh, and you just mentioned that he had a early relationship with a guy named Kevin Lampert, uh, and uh, Lampert is involved in the uh, the demise of the famed department store Sears, and that is, that is bringing him back into contact with Mnuchin today, correct? That's right. So, uh, you know, Mnuchin, as I said, was Eddie Lampert's roommate. Uh, Eddie Lampert showed up at Mnuchin's confirmation hearings. They obviously have a close relationship even to this day. Uh, uh, Mnuchin served on the board of Sears uh, for about a decade he, uh, in his most recent uh, uh, financial disclosure, it was found that Mnuchin profited from the hedge fund that Eddie Lampert runs. He also profited from a, a, a group called Seritage, 
which uh, received, it was a split of the real estate assets of Sears. They went into this separate corporation and then Sears, the company, had to lease back the stores it once owned from Seritage, which was created by the split. Uh, Mnuchin was invested in Seritage, made a lot of money with Seritage. So uh, all of these financial engineering kind of operations is what destroyed Sears. And Sears now, uh, it looks like it's going to be liquidated and the Sears pension will end up uh, in the hands of the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. Uh, and it will, you know, they'll have to determine whether pensioners will get paid out in full or, or not, or whether creditors, of which Eddie Lampert is one of them. It's a weird situation where he's the CEO of the company and the chairman of the company, and also one of the top creditors of the company because his hedge fund was lending money to Sears. Uh, so the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation has a three-person board, and one of those members of the board is the Treasury Secretary. And that's Steve Mnuchin, who, who invested uh, something like $26 million in Eddie Lampert's fund uh, and was on the board of Sears for 12 years. And now he gets to make the decision uh, about Sears pensioners uh, and, and whether or not the creditors, including his old roommate, will uh, be made whole. So it's, uh, you know, just a remarkable situation. Mnuchin said at his confirmation hearings that he would recuse himself from decisions involving Sears. However, he never put that in writing. Uh, some senators have asked him if he would uh, formally recuse back in October when it looked like uh, Sears was headed into bankruptcy and maybe liquidation. Uh, Mnuchin never responded to that. So, so it remains to be seen whether he will actually be uh, calling the shots uh, in some any way on on this uh, pension issue, uh, one of the things that I find is difficult for uh, the average news consumer to follow is uh, to what extent is the Trump presidency actually impacting policy? You know, the, the pronouncements are often made. Uh, big talk often comes out of uh, the president himself, but on a you know issue to issue, rule to rule, regulation to regulation basis what's actually becoming policy and being implemented on the ground, because lots of things, uh, the rule doesn't get finished or gets blocked by the courts. Um, you, you in the book do talk about you know, what actually is happening in the Treasury Department and how much is Mnuchin actually doing to carry forth, um, whether it's his agenda or the president's agenda or whoever's agenda it really is. Uh, how would you say Mnuchin has been, how successful has he been at actually changing the regulatory regime uh, of the Treasury Department's relationship with, uh, with the banking community? Yeah. So as you know, this takes time. Uh, it takes time to write the rules, to do the various administrative procedures that you need to do. But uh, at progress, I would say, is definitely being made. And it's being made on a few fronts. I mean, first of all, uh, uh, what we know about the regulatory arena is that uh, you can have as many rules as you want, but if they're not enforced, then uh, uh, they, they, they mean as much as a piece of paper. And certainly we've seen throughout the uh, financial regulatory space uh, that the, the, the rules aren't being enforced, enforced with the degree of seriousness that they were in previous administrations. And, and Mnuchin, as the head of the Treasury and the head of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, is certainly part of that. In his position running the Financial Stability Oversight Council, he has removed 
from stricter regulatory standards, several non-bank financial institutions who were previously designated as potential risks to the financial system. That includes AIG, who you might remember, uh, and Prudential, and uh, I I think potentially MetLife as well. Uh, These large insurance companies that have, you know, a certain interplay with the financial system uh, and, and could present a systemic risk, as AIG really did in the financial crisis, but they've been let off the hook. Um, there are a series of recommendations that the Treasury made back in June of 2017 uh, to the financial regulatory system, and uh, a lot of those could be done without the need for Congress to pass any laws. And I would say that the the financial uh, the, the regulatory industry uh, is is methodically really going about uh, uh, changing the, the 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 things that they want changed. Starting with the Volcker Rule, the Volcker Rule was uh, intended to ban uh, risky trading from the depository institutions, banks that take depositors' money. They didn't want them trading uh, on those accounts. But uh, there is a proposal now to change the Volcker rule in line with what the Treasury Department recommended. Uh, Part of this puts uh, the uh, it it essentially puts the banks in a discretionary role as to whether the trades that they're making are violating the Volcker rule. So it's it's really a fox guarding the hen house kind of situation. Uh, there's uh, also uh, a lot of work going on at the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is uh, part of the Treasury Department and is controlled by uh, Joseph Odding right now as the head of that agency. And he used to be the CEO of One West Bank, which Mnuchin was chair of. So they're, they're partnering up again within government. The big thing that Odding is working on is uh, weakening the Community Reinvestment Act. And the Community Reinvestment Act is the law that was put in place in the 1970s to ensure that banks are lending broadly across uh, uh, communities in the United States, including low and moderate income communities. Uh, This would reduce the frequency of testing uh, and monitoring for the Community Reinvestment Act. And it also uh, would weaken a lot of the standards for the CRA. So uh, those are two major areas. And there are many others uh, where uh, this is, you know, at least moving towards really having an impact. And I would say, as I said before, that when you're talking about regulatory enforcement, certainly we've seen a downgrade uh, in this administration. Uh, We're talking with uh, David Dan, co-author of the new book, Fat Cat, the Stephen Mnuchin story, co-authored with Rebecca Burns. Uh, David is also the author of the book Chain of Title and investigative fellow within these times and contributes to The Intercept, The New Republic, and The Los Angeles Times. Um, so uh, in the course of, uh, of, of writing uh, Fat Cat, um, uh, you noted that he has said that the Trump administration supports the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall, which has uh, long been a push by Elizabeth Warren and other economic populists on the left to separate uh, commercial banking from investment banking. That, that law was repealed in the Bill Clinton administration. Um, has Mnuchin done anything to date to follow through on that campaign pledge? 
absolutely not. And in fact, uh, this was one of the more amazing and, and maybe revelatory moments, uh, I think, in, in the book. So there was this hearing uh, in the Senate Banking Committee in May of 2017. And as you know, Elizabeth Warren sits on that committee. And she started asking uh, Steve Mnuchin about Glass-Steagall. You know, uh, Warren has actually written a, a bill called the 21st Century Glass-Steagall Act. So she was asking about whether the Trump administration supports uh, that bill. And uh, Mnuchin has said that they support a 21st century Glass-Steagall, but they don't support the part where commercial and investment banks would be separated. Now, this is entirely what anyone means by Glass-Steagall. That's pretty much what it does is separate commercial and investment banking. And uh, Mnuchin said, you know, Warren's like, well, this is crazy. You're saying that you support a 21st century Glass-Steagall, but not the part that's Glass-Steagall. And Mnuchin said there wasn't a reversal uh, he, he says aspects of it make sense, but we never supported a full separation. But but that that is the heart of Glass-Steagall. So it was, it was this almost bizarro world uh, hearing. And that's really the last we've heard of it from the Trump administration. Uh, uh, there was some indication that what they meant by Glass-Steagall was a separation in regulations between community banks and big banks. Uh, which meant that in their conception, Glass-Steagall just meant deregulation uh, of the smaller banks in in the sector, uh, which is kind of par for the course, I would say, for this administration. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Um, so you also note uh, in the book that one of the banks that Mnuchin was uh, previously involved in, uh, run by him, uh, has now been hit with an eight-figure fine for stealing from the government, uh, which I would think if this was any other administration uh, and at any other point of time, like that, that in itself would be, you know, a weeks long scandal. It probably would lead to the ouster of the <laughs> Treasury Secretary. Uh, uh, can you tell a bit, bit more about that backstory and why do you think this hasn't become something that is that is widely known about him? Right. So One West Bank, uh, I mean, maybe it's just because there are so many violations that One West Bank engaged in uh, that that the the latest one just doesn't raise an eyebrow, but. Uh, One West Bank was inaugurated after it was a failed bank called IndyMac uh, that was a subprime lender. 
And uh, Mnuchin bought, you know, along with a consortium, he, he kind of brought together through his uh, hedge fund. And they purchased One West Bank, renamed it from IndyMac to One West. And uh, they acquired the portfolio uh, from One West Bank. And that included a few things. One was just uh, loan servicing for a number of uh, subprime loans, which they then moved to foreclose on uh, with rapidity uh, using some, some pretty dodgy practices. Uh, that's actually not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is uh, a reverse mortgage arm that was part of IndyMac that went over to One West called Financial Freedom, uh, which, uh, again, when there were failures to pay on uh, these reverse mortgages, Financial Freedom uh, uh, often moved to foreclose, even though uh, what we're talking about is a failure to pay is things like property taxes and homeowners insurance. In a reverse mortgage, typically it's the, the company that pays the borrower, uh, but uh, in in this case, they would they would move the foreclose very quickly. Financial freedom, according to some data, was responsible for thirty percent, thirty nine percent of all reverse mortgage foreclosures, while only seventeen percent of all reverse mortgages. So they were more trigger happy than everybody else, and there are stories about. Uh, uh, you know, foreclosing on 103 year old women after they, they lapse uh, for one month or foreclosing over a 27 cent underpayment. Uh, these are some of the examples of what happened. And so, yes, in, uh, during the Trump administration in 2017, the Justice Department did a $89 million settlement with financial freedom saying that the company actually ripped off the government. Because what it did was it was uh, uh, getting federal insurance for these mortgage foreclosures on these reverse mortgages that were unlawful, uh, that were that were done uh, in an in in, a, in an illegal way, uh, and so you have this situation where the Treasury Secretary formerly ran this bank, and it's getting hit with this eight-figure fine for stealing from the government. Uh, that's what the fine was about. It wasn't uh, necessarily about the foreclosures. Uh, and uh, everybody just sort of moved on, as you said. Uh, it was it was just seen as par for the course. Uh, uh, financial freedom was, was receiving these interest payments without following the guidelines uh, that the Federal Housing Administration puts out for how you can recoup insurance. And so, you know, this allowed them to essentially be paid multiple times on the same mortgage. Uh, it, it allowed them to collect insurance and potentially also foreclose and resell the property. So um, uh, this this is probably more the norm than the exception for One West Bank. And, and we have a litany of stories in the book about uh, the different ways in which One West uh, uh, damaged homeowners uh, and engaged in, in sketchy or even illegal tactics uh, in order to foreclose. Uh, this is just one of them. Uh, but uh, it's, it's notable in that even Jeff Sessions' Justice Department thought it was a bridge too far. Uh, who knew Jeff Sessions was the moral center of the, uh, of the Trump administration? Um, so uh, you also touch upon the book that he has not been on the same side as uh, Trump's main uh, trade advisors when it comes to 
trade agreements uh, with foreign countries. Uh, and there's there was some news reports that they had a very there was a screaming match between Mnuchin and uh, Pierre Navarro. Uh, do, do you do you have any sense of uh, that dynamic and to what extent has that um, I mean, I, does that put Mnuchin um, far away from Trump and makes him a, a less close advisor and has weakened his position in the administration? Or is this evidence that maybe all Trump's bluster about trade really isn't as populist as we think it is because he has people close to him that constantly push back on, on protectionism and are pushing for more free trade? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I know, uh, as I'm sure you know, there's sort of two minds within, or at least initially, there were uh, sort of two minds on trade within the Trump administration. You kind of had the institutionalists like Mnuchin and Gary Cohn uh, that were uh, more interested on the sort of Wall Street view of trade, which was keep it going and uh, don't disrupt uh, these international trade flows for large multinational corporations. And then you sort of had the the populist uh, Peter Navarro, uh, Robert Lighthizer, to a lesser extent, world uh, that was in tension with that. And uh, Mnuchin's kind of the last man standing on that sort of institutionalist Wall Street side. Most of the other uh, Wall Street members of the the uh, administration have left, uh, Gary Cohn, Dina Powell, and people like that. Um, one thing I think that this shows is how deeply involved Mnuchin is, or at least wants to be, in all sorts of areas uh, of, of Trump administration domestic policy. I mean, uh, he was the lead on the tax law. Uh, he, he was taking meetings with Tim Cook of Apple and, and, and being a liaison to the, the Republicans in Congress. Uh, he, he tries to, I mean, there's even reporting that, uh, uh, people like John Kelly were annoyed, uh, that, that he was, he was just attending all these meetings and trying to be just sort of at the center of practically everything that was being done. And I think that this, uh, trade dust up is sort of an example of that. Uh, you would think that the U.S. trade representative would be sort of the primary uh, individual involved in running trade policy. But here, Mnuchin, as Treasury Secretary, is trying to get his uh, get himself into that process. Uh, and, and that, I think, is is pretty notable uh, you know, right now it's a little unsettled where this is going. There are talks. There's sort of a pause on additional trade war issues with China, and there are allegedly talks going on during this 90-day pause. Um, and uh, it's unclear sort of what side will win out, but it does show the sort of internal uh, bureaucratic infighting. Uh, within the Trump administration and and really uh, Mnuchin's attempt to aggregate a, a, as much power to himself as possible. Uh, you say uh, in the book uh, that uh, even if Mnuchin believes himself to be a clear-eyed technocrat rather, rather than a Wall Street ideologue, most of us understand exactly which side Mnuchin is on, even if he himself does not. Uh, do, do you think that he doesn't see himself as a uh, defender of Wall Street special interests. He sees himself as the adult in the room. Uh, or do you think that 
the, the notion that he's the adult in the room is it, he, he knows that that's a fiction and that he, he is purposely uh, taking a political stance on behalf of his favorite constituency. I mean, I think the last place I want to be right now is inside Steve Mnuchin's head. So uh, I'm not sure that I totally want to answer this question, but um, I, I do think that uh, he just has a view of the world that is informed by his uh, history, his lifestyle, his connections, and, and who he associates with. And that view of the world lines up with sort of a, a, a very pro-Wall Street, pro-finance uh, uh, worldview. Uh, and um, you know, it's certainly possible that he sees that as as an adult in the room. Uh, and and, you know, I mean, I, I think that we've seen examples of this throughout recent history uh, that the the sort of uh, technocratic side and the the side that uh, argues for more and more financialization kind of uh, sit in the same in the same area. But, um, I, you know, I, I prefer to look at what is the implications of his policy choices what are what are what does it really mean to people in the real world and i think uh what we know is that what Mnuchin has been pushing for would mean more deregulation more risk in the financial system less enforcement of wrongdoing and ultimately uh the threat of another financial crisis you know one of the things we mentioned in the book near the very end is that there was this study that came out of the International Monetary Fund of all of all people, not exactly, you know, a, a, a totally left wing uh, set of ideologues. And it was this report that looked at uh, what happened after financial crisis uh, across the developed world uh, for the last three centuries. It looked at these financial crises and it said that this sort of operates like a pendulum. So uh, after the years in the years sort of before a crash, there's a rapid swing of deregulation and then there's a crash and the pendulum swings back into a place of of building up safeguards and regulations into the system. And then memories fade and there's a swing of the pendulum back toward deregulation. And, And we're now on that backswing. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and Mnuchin is really at the forefront of that. Uh, the, the, you're, you're seeing that regulators are, are more and more, uh, captured by these, these financial interests. They come from Wall Street. They're more forgiving of what is going on there. And it's, it puts the country and, and really the world in a, in a more precarious, situation. And so whether Mnuchin thinks that's just common sense or whether he's actively and deliberately rewarding his pals, uh, the, the effect is the same. And, and, and the effect is, is really dangerous. Um, if I could bring us back to where we started, um, you know, we talked a little bit, a little bit about why would Trump pick him do you have any insight to why Mnuchin picked Trump, given that, uh, where his, uh, his, where his worldview was shaped and whose interests he seems to look out for, that, that seemed to clash with where Trump was going from the get-go. Why, if you want to get into he, he wasn't somebody who was in presidential politics in the first place. He didn't have much of a political pedigree. Uh, if you want to break into it, why didn't he go with a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio or a Chris Christie? Do you know how 
he, did, why he sought out Trump in the first place? That's a really interesting question. And uh, it, it, it's, it's hard for me to fully answer, but I know that there has been reporting that has asked Mnuchin sort of that very question. And he sort of answers flippantly and says, well, I'm here, aren't I? Uh, it, it's, it's possible that a man with Mnuchin's pedigree and intellect wouldn't have gotten very far in a uh, Jeb Bush uh, theoretical administration. He might have gotten some assistant traveling secretary job, but not the Treasury Department uh, top slot, right? Uh, but Trump was someone who was, didn't have those connections to sort of the historical uh, uh, conservative uh, pro-deregulation circles and uh, he was able to rise through the ranks much more freely and easily there. But it's a really good question to ask because, you know, a lot of Mnuchin's uh, personal donations were to Democrats. Uh, he, he gave to Kamala Harris. He gave to the California Democratic Party. He, was, he lived here in California in the last uh, several years leading up to uh, his, his uh, uh, rise as Treasury Secretary. So uh, why would he, he choose Trump? And it's, it's a little unclear uh, how the two of them really got together. But I would suspect it was a, a situation where, especially looking at how much Mnuchin craves and, and desires power at this point, he, he saw it as a purely transactional kind of situation where, hey, if I go with this guy and he, he breaks it, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be able to, to be in a position that's much higher than if I went with sort of a more traditional campaign. So uh, uh, that could be part of it. But it's a very good question to ask. The book is Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story, uh, published by Strong Arm Press, written by Rebecca Burns and David Dayan. David, thank you so much for being on New Books of Politics. All right. Thank you. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.